Welcome to the Curious and Getty. We're your hosts, David Squitter and Matthew Keener. Stop what you're doing and subscribe to our podcast and leave us an awesome five-star review and follow us at Serengeti Sec on Twitter. We're here to talk more about cybersecurity. Each episode will focus on a specific topic or two of interest to the community. Today, we are talking about the Google September 2022 Threat Horizons Report. And as usual, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are ours and ours alone and do not reflect the views or opinions of our employers. The most common threat identified in the September 2022 Threat Horizons Report is boredom. Spoiler alert, we didn't like it. So I'd actually, speaking of which, I'd like to start with a kind of overall report card. Was it good? Was it effective? Did you like it as a report? No. <laughs> I thought that was yeah. a rhetorical question, which you were going to answer. Hence <laughs> to pause. <laughs> no, I, uh, I feel like it was about twice as long as it needed to be. I was about 25 pages of text. And I was thinking about like how many people actually deep dive into these and really try and convert it into useful, actionable data. That's probably several hours to dive in and understand the whole thing. Well, it depends on how you want to take it. You know, do you want to know about what the the threats that they're actually proposing in the report, or do you just want to grab the three pages of mitigations, which is turn on this Google tool, turn on that Google tool, <laughs> et cetera? Yeah. yeah. I feel like all the mitigations they gave you, though, could occupy a security department for a year. Like, there's a ton of stuff in there. Um, yeah. Did you, yeah. But it'll, it'll occupy your time for a year if you have a Google Cloud deployment because their mitigations are almost entirely Google, Google Cloud-centric. There wasn't a lot in here about, hey, if you're running a generic cloud environment, you should be doing X, Y, and Z or, or just X even. Yeah. Did you find it to be an interesting read? No. I mean, the, I, for, for me, <laughs> for me, the letter from the editor at the very start of the report kind of set the stage for the whole thing. Because you read the uh, the letter, which is like two pages up front, written by Christopher Porter, who's their head of threat intelligence for Google Cloud. And, you know, it's all about nation state and APT threats, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then you get down into, right after that, they do the summary, which says that, where is it? The 65% of, here we go. Crypto mining accounted for nearly two-thirds, 65% of all incidents. So they spend two pages of talking about the, the threat and the risk of government-sponsored attackers and APT, et cetera. And then they say 65% of the issues that we deal with are crypto mining. That seems like really if, if this report, if this letter from the editor was going to have any bearing on the report itself, it would have had more more information about crypto mining and things of that nature instead of this nation state stuff, which is not really relevant to what seems to be a large portion of the problem. And then also, uh, yeah, additionally in the summary, they say threat actors are frequently targeting weak or in default passwords on SSH, WordPress, and RDP, uh, which were half of the overall instance that, that they identified. And they're also in here, another problem I had with it, it was a lot of, I don't know, I guess I'll just call them weasel words around what's going on versus some hard data about what they're seeing in the field. And one of the, for instance here is that they say the high level of SSH activity suggests that organizations are either using no credentials or default credentials when spinning up instances. I don't see how the high level SSH activity suggests that without the, the information to say, yeah, these things occurred and we looked into the incidents and it turns out that the reason that these incidents occurred was because they were, they had no credentials or they're using default credentials. These are just assuming that they don't have crappy credentials. 
on the the accounts or that the accounts aren't used aren't being compromised through password reuse or something like that it's just it's i think it's a, a, a it's either a sloppy way to state this or this is all really hypothetical guessing about what's going on without take, providing any data to to back up what they're thinking and for me that's kind of annoying because the reason that we read these kind of reports from these large organizations is the assumption that they have access to these troves of data that we don't have access to, to understand what's really happening because everyone is stuck in their own little area. Whereas, you know, Google has thousands, well, probably billions of customers or millions of customers across the whole entire planet. So you expect more detailed information about what's really going on out there and get some trending or, or understand what the next thing is. And all they get is suggests. Yeah. In other words, if we were to guess, this is what we think the problem is, is really what that, that, that's the way I interpret the word suggest. You know, I could have guessed that I didn't need Google and this report for that. That's fair. But there was some, there was a couple of pieces of interesting information here where they did provide some data and that's around stuff from virus total. So they said that according to their virus, the, a report, I guess there was a second report, which these guys used a actual virus total report that the team that put together this report read and provided some of the, the data into this report. And one of those things being 10% of well-known popular websites are seen being distributing malware. And they don't really say where they get, how they define popular. I'm assuming it's like Alexa top 100 or something like that is how they get that. But that's a 10% is a fairly decent sized number. If you're talking about the Alexa top 100 or something like that, because that's a lot of traffic being directed towards those sites. Yeah. And they didn't describe how the malware is being distributed. Is it coming from the website itself? Like it was compromised and they added a little JavaScript link to redirect you? Or was it an adware campaign or a third party integration or what? There's all kinds of ways that websites now can be distributing malware. And this is not exceptionally all. This kind of goes back to what you were saying. Like, don't they have that information? Why are they being so generic about it? Right. If they actually had this thing saying that 10 and and actually, now that I think about it, there may be a reason why they didn't specify that in there, because we're talking about Google and imagine if these 10% of the popular sites distributing malware was through adware <laughs> and Google generates <laughs> revenue from adware. Yeah. And the suggestion mitigation to this would be use your proxy to use block an ad, ad blocker. sites. Ad blocker. <laughs> yeah, use an ad blocker. Uh, Google is certainly not going to tell you that. No. So that makes complete sense about why they're so vague in the virus total report. <laughs> It probably is, Adware, you're right. And just just to, to point out, VirusTotal was purchased by Google in, 10 years ago, which I'd completely forgotten about. So this is an internal report from Google that they're getting this from. So VirusTotal also, if you are able to get your hands on the report that they wrote, I doubt if you're going to get the details out of there either, because they're going to have the same deference to Google's overall profit margins. But another piece of a data point that was in the VirusTotal report was they said that they found 1 million signed malware samples 87% of that 1 million were signed with legitimate certificates. That is shockingly high. That is really high. So, although I guess 1 million probably isn't all that many in the context of all of virus total samples, but that's not how I read it initially. I initially read that as 87% of 87% of uh, malware was signed. <laughs> Actually, that's a good point. I wish they would have put that 1 million in context though. Yeah, 1 million out of 100 million, 1 million out of 1 billion, like, I don't know. Right. Actually, you know, two additional numbers would have, would have made that more interesting. 
this is the number of files submitted. This is the number found to be malware. And this is mm. the number found to be signed malware. And, and the other 13%, they had expired certificates and other things of that nature, which is why it was only 87% and not 100%. Yep. Makes sense. I originally actually, I made another misconception here. I wondered what percentage of it was Let's Encrypt. And then I went and looked it up and apparently you cannot do code signing with Let's Encrypt. It's the wrong kind of certificate. Which is good. Can you imagine if they had Let's Encrypt for <laughs> code signing? But the reason that doesn't work, that wouldn't really work and would still cause problems is that signed code, there needs to be a, a history. It needs to have a history behind it to say that this has been seen and used so many times in order to lend validity to the, the, the signed code. Unless you're talking about signed code from like Microsoft or large vendors like that. Because if you're a small time software producer and you, you sign your, your software, uh, it's still going to be flagged as sketchy until it reaches a certain threshold of use because it hasn't been seen. Because any, any hacker could sign their code. It doesn't make it legit unless you're talking about actually coming from someone who's already been approved as, as a legit source. Like if you're doing application whitelisting, in order to make that a little bit easier, you can set your application whitelist and say, oh, well, it's whitelisted if it's been signed by Microsoft. Yeah, and I'm assuming that's what they mean by the legitimate certificates, is that the 13% that were not signed by a legitimate, although it did say the 13% that were not signed were signed by like revoked or right or flagged certs so yeah i don't know i don't know if that's like publicly legitimate certificates where when you run it on windows windows won't flag it or if that's like self-signed hmm. right so i guess that is another piece of information that would have been additional detail would have been more interesting just based on you know what we were just talking about a minute ago that anybody can sign code with a, a quote-unquote legitimate certificate <laughs> um, depends on how you define legitimate yeah so there was a comment in here, quote, is it, it is possible for websites to contain credible, almost indistinguishable logs compared to Google Workspace logs and therefore become phishing attack vectors against cloud clients? I didn't understand that at all. I didn't they, either. I thought maybe they were talking about that you'd spit up a site that had what appeared to be Google logs in it and it was used as a phishing lure to get them to go to someplace that has malware or something like that. It was just a, I thought it was a unclarified comment. Yeah. yeah. And they mentioned turning on Google Workspace logs later. So yeah, that, that implies to me that those are like admin logs. But they did have a quote in here about, it is our assessment, the volume of cloud targeted attacks leveraging corporate single sign-on logins will rise, end quote. And you know, that goes back to the whole thing I said, you know, where I pointed out suggestions. They said they assess that the cloud-based attacks against SSO will rise. Not that it has risen or we've seen definitive evidence that it is on the rise. This is more that, that, that weasel language that's not really helpful. I mean, anybody could assume this because everyone wants to go to single sign-on as much as they can uh, because it loses, uh, reduces uh, user friction and eases administration because you don't have to manage a whole bunch of different accounts and do password resets on a whole bunch of different accounts, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I'd be shocked if it wasn't on the rise if attackers were not taking advantage of this. Right. Yeah. You can assume that if anything gets more broadly adopted, the attacks against that same thing are going to rise. It just makes logical sense. You know, Microsoft Windows has the largest market share, therefore they have the most attackers. It doesn't make any sense for there to be a rise in some kind of niche thing 
unless there's something that makes that highly valuable, which I have not seen yet. Yeah. And I think their example was an attacker installing a malicious browser extension, which used the SSO pre-authenticated browser activity to read and exfiltrate data from other services, which is interesting. And they mentioned the key risks of attacks like this is since you're using legitimate access, it's difficult to detect. MFA isn't effective because it's piggybacking on legitimate access. Uh, there's an ease, ease of user permission flow. You're accessing other applications and it's not triggering a password or a credentials prompt. SSO has a single point of access and a single point of failure and a lack of user awareness. Since it's piggybacking, the user doesn't see anything weird. Although my question here is if it's using pre-authorized browser sessions, does it need to open up new tabs, tabs to do it? Or is the extension able to, that, that, that malicious extension able to reach out programmatically via API and use those SSO credential or technically, I guess, the authentication token for that? I don't know. That's a good question. I have no idea. Yeah, they don't give as much detail on like what the user sees here. But I would have to imagine since they said a lack of user awareness, I would bet that it's doing it all programmatically under the hood. Right. And then they have a list of suggested mitigations. And their first one is raise user awareness. About what? They, they just <laughs> said this could be done without the user knowing. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know. Then they recommended SSO activity and monitoring. But they also said that you know it's authenticated activity. It's hard to detect. The only answer here that I can think of is maybe UBA of some kind, some kind of statistical detection. Maybe this is the first time this user has accessed this or done this using SSO. Maybe user agents. Although I guess if they're using Chrome, it probably comes across as user agent string being Chrome. Um, and they suggested to manage SSO enabled software installation, which reviewing installed software seems incredibly painful. And I don't even know how you verify if software is SSO enabled easily. You know, that is, I don't think that's a built-in query in Splunk. No, you'd have to look at AD and look at the integration. And finally, they recommended Chrome Enterprise. Uh, they've recommended this one a couple of things on here, which is interesting. I actually had only recently heard of it. I was listening to the Google Security Podcast this last week with Anton Chivakin, and they were discussing the browser as a security tool. Yeah, it'd be nice if the browser just didn't introduce vulnerabilities. Well, then you are never going to be happy with that one. But they had somebody on from the Chrome Enterprise team who was talking about how Chrome Enterprise, which is the enterprise version that you can manage centrally, has a number of mitigations and protections. It says it can detect and prevent sensitive data loss. Is that DLP built in? That's kind of weird. Protections against malware and phishing by blocking threats in real time. I have no idea if that's different than regular Chrome. Sometimes in regular Chrome, if you go to a weird site, it'll warn you and say that this is a suspicious site and you shouldn't visit it. It does provide security reporting and insight, including password reuse, unsafe site visits, malware transfer, and password breaches. It provides adaptive policy management, device risk management, force updates, and block or force extensions from one console. So I, I've never seen Chrome Enterprise in use anywhere, I don't think. Well, that's kind of interesting. I didn't even know they had a product where you can manage Chrome across an entire company. Well, I think Chrome has a AD extension where you can manage it via group policy, doesn't it? I don't know. I don't know anything about AD very much other than how to break into it and how to read the logs from it. Whenever you get them <laughs> or when you eventually get them. I guess that's really Azure AD. But so the next section is cloud application security reviews and data discovery. Another boring section. They did mention though of organizations that had spent at least $50 million on cloud security, 85% of them had sensitive data exposed, which I don't know how they got that number. I assume it was a survey of some sort. 
but they don't really explain how they got it. Yeah, uh, but apparently they didn't spend enough. <laughs> only they had spent $60 million, <laughs> and they found that organizations store more data than they need, which leaves them open to that being stolen. And their recommendations here were ensure at least privilege, including API accounts, properly categorize the data, collect what, only what you need where it should be stored, and store it where it needs to be based on its classification, redact the data, delete the data on a retention schedule, use DLP, and monitor your data access. Right. If you're if you're not cloud centric to monitor the data access, you can actually do that with a product like Veronis that does data management. But Google suggests you use the data access logs to monitor the data access in the cloud, in Google Cloud, that is. Yeah. And then finally, not finally, I'm sorry, there's two more, two more sections. Next section is hijacking cloud infrastructure. And we talked about this the other week. They had an example of an attacker compromise some service credentials, use them to spin up crowd, cloud resources for crypto mining. The example they gave the initial operating volume was less than 50 CPUs. So a pretty small cloud footprint and around 10 PM GMT, they had a nice little graph. I assume it said 2200. I assume it's GMT. The attacker spun up more than 20,000 CPUs. Oh, wow. Uh, and I don't know how much a single CPU in Google Cloud is. They, and they refer to it as CPUs rather than instances, which is interesting. The other week when we were looking at AWS, it was $76 an hour for a large instance, but that instance had like 64 CPUs. So yeah. I don't know what Google Cloud pricing is. Yeah, because they probably bill by the CPU. And yeah, that's that why they use that as their metric. And of hmm. course, their mitigations are least privilege monitor for leaked service account creds in the public code repositories, privileged account management, and budget alerts. I could swore we just talked about that. <laughs> it's a good thing we read this report. And the very last thing in the report is responding to the next solar winds, which of course everyone wants to be able to do, right? <laughs> yeah, I felt like this is a little, this is a little late, but sure. Yeah, solar winds was three years ago now. <laughs> They're going to keep putting this in here forever. Oh, SolarWinds will be the watchword forever. Actually, yeah. I wonder what SolarWinds stock looks like today since the market is totally tanking. I wonder if they're even worse off. But SolarWinds is down to eight bucks. What was it before? At their peak, it was 24. Oh, okay. So, hmm. yeah, Google Cloud CPUs seem real cheap. They were saying that, that initially, that system, they initially had 50 CPUs. Like if that was in one system, you can get a 48 CPU with 48 gigs of memory for a buck 50 an hour. That's not bad. That's not bad at all. I wonder if I could play video games on that. I could play that for two or three hours a night. And like that's, that's three bucks a day. And if I did that 300, that's $900 a year. That's cheaper than buying a new computer every two years. I wonder what the graphics card has. All right. But everything they have here for solar winds is well the, the main thing they talk about is uh, logging in here so dns logs review the dns logs for connections to known ips your authentication logs your email logs looking for changes to forwarding rules to prevent data exfil really that's something either you should configure so that you can't do or you should have an alert set up for anybody who sets up one of these forwarding rules yeah that one's not hard well it depends on how many domains you have you can because that definitely comes through in the microsoft office 365 logs so you can set up a email forwarding rule alert for forwarding to external domains pretty easily. Yeah, but of course they're talking about Gmail. <laughs> You're right. And I have no idea how that works. <laughs> yeah. Neither does most people probably. 
this is where they mentioned the Google Workspace logs that I saw before. I was like, what is this going on? They also mentioned using pre-built queries for BigQuery and Chronicle. And that's where I realized that this is a sales pitch. Oh, you should have used our SIM. It has pre-built queries for this. It's magical. Yeah. And, and I hate when reports just tell you to monitor a log. That's a big job. How about you give me some example queries, especially if this is coming from Google and they're using the Google, like the Google email logs. Give me some example queries of what your logs look like and what my query should look like. Although I'll be honest, I usually when they give you queries, they're usually pretty crappy anyways. Uh, we've talked before in the past about how much I love Splunk, but a lot of the built-in queries for Splunk require a lot of tuning to make work, unfortunately. No, for something like this, where you've got a you've got a a, a a software provider providing this kind of information, saying look at the logs. Rather, I would see what we really would prefer to see from from Google is these are the event types you should be monitoring for because they could mean X. Yeah, especially if they had some examples from some of these supposed incidents they've seen. I would love if they would include here's how it was detected. You know event type 3574 and the username was this and here's how you can find it in the future that would right. be amazing or this log entry within five minutes followed by this log entry you know or something like that i agree that would be that would be useful yeah because when you're talking about logs and they say monitor logs when you are let's just use talk about just software in, in general is that that if that software is designed to perform a function and users are using that software and it's generating logs and those logs are going into your SIM. It may not be clear when inactivity, which be, is being logged and is into the SIM is a bad thing. So, and if you talk to the users of that software, they have no idea what those logs mean. So it's difficult to actually be able to cr create a really good query in the SIM based around the way a specific application functions, unless you have the details about what's actually a good or a bad thing in, in the log. For, for instance, let's say you have a, a HR, HR software package and there's a log entry that indicates that an employee changed their routing information for their paycheck. You know, that might be something you'd want to monitor in the log, but because employees are allowed to do that or HR administrators are allowed to do that, when is that good and when is that bad? Uh, you know, that's the kind of information that's helpful when you're talking about certain specific software packages. Yep. And they provided some mitigations, centralized logs at the organizational level. Well, that's great. Man, uh, <laughs> we've been doing it wrong this whole time. <laughs> we've been splitting off the logs and sending them everywhere. And this actually kind of goes with that. Like this, it, it hurts a little bit sometimes because they always assume that every organizational team has like a content team because all these reports are written for like Fortune 200 companies with large security groups and they have content teams and they've got multiple engineers and they've got socks. Anyways, use infrastructure as code to reduce configures and force logging. That's kind of cool. Like make sure that everything you're deploying to the cloud is all consistent with your policy and review the cloud log audit best practices. So I still don't understand exactly how this would have stopped SolarWinds. <laughs> I mean, it's just generic good logging advice. Well, it's generic yeah. logging advice. Right. Good is a little bit of a stretch. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So overall, we read this report, so you don't have to. And you shouldn't. And you shouldn't. <laughs> unless you, unless, you know, unless you use Google Cloud. If you use Google Cloud quite a bit, then sure, there's probably some things in here that are useful. But I was kind of hoping, like, Google sees a bunch of cool attacks. I was kind of hoping to see some more 
I don't know. We, we talked about this before we started recording and some reports you read and you're like, oh, that's so cool. And you go to the next page and you're like, oh, that's so cool. And like, it's just like stream of, or, or like mitigations. You're like, oh, I've never heard of this attack. Oh, we should totally do this. Or I've never heard of this mitigation. This one was just, this one felt like a series of blog posts that were just pasted together. And maybe it was. Yeah, could be. That explains why it feels so disjointed on some of them. You talked about how the the letter, that our letter from the editor didn't really match the rest. Right. You'd think that that would have set the stage for the contents of the entire report, but it didn't. So needless to say, we will not be reviewing October's or November's <laughs> or whenever the next probably, one is. I feel like it's probably on out. a quarterly basis because I think we saw it before. Yeah. And, and I think that's too frequent. Maybe once a decade <laughs> would probably be accurate or good, good timing for this. Oh, boy. All right, but we're done and done with this report. So thanks for listening to this Curious Serengeti podcast and follow us on Twitter at Serengeti Sec and subscribe and listen on your favorite podcast app. 